You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Jock McGregor. Jock is the director of the Labrie branch in Rochester, Minnesota. This lecture is entitled Christ and Culture Revisited. Our subject today is Christ and culture. How should the Christian relate to his or her surrounding culture? It's not a new issue, but it's a subject of a great deal of interest today. And I have to say not a little confusion as well. And so to help us, I plan to look at uh, Richard Niebuhr's classic work on the subject. I have a, a rather frayed old copy of the book here. You can see it's been well used. Uh, Christ and Culture, a classic. But I also want to look into Scripture, because that's where I think we find our best help. Um, And I'd like, in fact, to begin there. Um, Though, at the outset, the Bible does seem to place us in something of a tension. I'd like to start with John 17, the well-known section in the Gospel of John, where we find what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus has come to the end of his earthly ministry. He's in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. He's gathered in the upper room with his disciples. They've shared the Last Supper. And he's told them that he's about to part from them. They're naturally frightened and confused. And so he offers words of advice and comfort. And then he closes this time with one of the really great prayers of the Bible. Jesus knows what is coming. For him it's the crucifixion and all its cosmic relevance. But for the disciples, this is truly a dawn of a new era. They will no longer have Jesus with them, with them physically present. They will be left behind, literally. And left behind in a very hostile world. Which is somewhat of the situation we find ourselves in now in our culture. And most Christians, through most eras, have found themselves in a certain sense, left behind in a hostile world. And so these parting words of Jesus are, I believe, as relevant today as they were to that small band of followers all those many years ago. Uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, uh, and we'll pick it up uh, in verse 9. This is Jesus praying. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. 
All I have is yours and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so the scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world. They are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Well, let me go on. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, there's a lot, uh, of course, that Jesus had to say in that high priestly prayer. Uh, And in uh, the instructions that he gave prior to it. But in this section particularly, I think the focus for our discussion this morning uh, becomes crystallized. And it's actually a major theme of Jesus in this occasion. Helping to orient the disciples in a hostile world where he is not physically present. Which is really our situation. How should we be oriented in a world, in a hostile world? And we may have already noticed, I hope, I repeated it twice, in this text, the origins of this very popular phrase that in Christian circles you, I'm sure, have heard many times, we are in the world, but not of the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. This is where that phrase comes from, this text. But what does it mean to be a Christian in the world? What do we learn from this text? Well, first of all, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he intends for us to remain in the world. He prays, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. So we're in the world. Well, in some sense, that may seem a very obvious fact. Is Jesus just stating the obvious? Well, not really. First, we must understand that what Jesus means by this word world in this context is very specific. He's not simply talking about the creation, the cosmos. As creatures, 
we are all unavoidably a part of God's creation. Nor is this a reference to the earth. Again, as humans we were created to dwell on a physical earth. Rather, the word world in this context means the creation of fallen man. It's the particular ungodly cultural environment we all dwell in. It is an environment created by sinful and fallen men. It surrounds us like water surrounds a fish. And so it comprises a world of its own. But because of its origins, it is opposed to God's purposes. One commentator puts it this way, it is mankind alienated from the life of God, sin-laden, under judgment, in need of salvation. So this is what Jesus is meaning when he says you are in the world. This is what the world is. It's a wicked and broken place and it's where Jesus has left us and left us intentionally. He goes on in fact to say, praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He specifically states that he wants us to be left in this world. Even as he leaves, we must stay. So when we affirm that the Christian is in the world, we're not just stating the obvious, but we're also affirming that we have been left in a corrupt and broken situation, and there we are to stay. The implication is that we are here according to God's purposes, and that we are not to try to leave or to escape this world. Now, trying to escape the world may seem a rather odd and even possibly futile notion. But throughout church history, we've seen again and again the temptation for Christians to do just that. To find ways to somehow get out of this predicament. As impossible as that may seem, countless numbers of Christians have fallen into the mindset that somehow, in fact, it's the point of the Christian life. It's how you become Christian. is to somehow remove oneself from the world. At this point, it brings us, I think, to Niebuhr. For nobody has done a better job of surveying all of church history and showing the long struggle, in fact, that Christians and the church has had with being and remaining in the world. So I want to move now to look a little bit at Niebuhr's book. Long-time professor of Christian ethics at Yale Divinity School, Richard Niebuhr published his classic book, Christ and Culture, in 1951. It's a long time ago already. But it reflected years of careful study and achieved an unparalleled comprehensiveness uh, that has made it, in fact, a staple in seminaries ever since. 
and it still informs and even shapes a lot of the discussion and debate today. Its strength lies in its simplicity of its five-fold structure, placing all of Christian history and thought and biblical thinking into these five different models of how the Christian, or if you will, Christ and culture relate. And these five models are put forth in, actually originally he gave it as five different lectures and then put it in the book form. But he shows that pretty much everything that's happening in church history and most of scripture can, be, can find a place in one or other of these five models. And that's what makes it such a useful, useful tool. Uh, but it's the first model that I think we should start with and is of interest at this point. Because there we see, and Niebuhr explores, this long-standing effort, temptation of Christians to try to escape the world. Niebuhr calls this the Christ against culture model. He defines this as shaped by an uncompromising, I'm quoting him now, uncompromisingly affirms the sole authority of Christ over the Christian and resolutely rejects the culture's claims to loyalty. So the culture has no claim on us at all. It is only Christ and Christ alone. And there can be, quote, no compromise. Christians are called to live a way of life quite separate from the culture. They are, in fact, to withdraw from the world. There is a fundamental antithesis between Christ and world. An irreconcilable opposition. The world is given over to sin. If we are in Christ, then we are, and their favorite text from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. What could be clearer than that? The historic examples that Niebuhr brings uh, to light are uh, plentiful. And we see how this effort started very early to somehow establish a separateness. The one that is still present with us today that started very far back was the monastic movement. Here, the effort to create islands, as it were, within the surrounding culture, to establish a a, a physical, literal separation, living a completely separated community life around walls, sometimes in cells. A physical distance. One can think of uh, the mystical tradition, which in a way tries to create a kind of a, a mental distance between oneself and the world. 
not far from where we are in Rochester is a, a large Amish community. Even today we can see the Anabaptist tradition, Mennonites, the Amish, who have retreated into very admirably run communities, separate, speaking a different language. Even in our own uh, times, uh, not that long ago, evangelicals look back to their fundamentalist forebearers, the fundamentalists uh, uh, of the early part of the 20th century, who tried as hard as they could to create a kind of separate Christian world within the wider world with the legalistic list of do's and don'ts that defined how Christians should behave. Skepticism even about uh, higher education, the denominational churches, uh, really removing themselves into a kind of defensive posture vis-a-vis the world, the fundamentalists. This morning, uh, Dick outlined the sacred secular fallacy, which of course has been around for a very long time. And that's another form, another way in which we try to kind of bifurcate our life. If we can't escape the world entirely, maybe we can escape it in part. And so we we kind of live out the mundane secular aspects of our lives in a sort of tentative rather Uh, uh, a hesitant way but then we retreat into our sacred spaces, our sacred times our church worship or our times of personal quiet and so on and we listen to our sacred music so this effort to try to move ourselves and distance ourselves from this fallen world is very long-standing and has Niebuhr outlines uh, very well uh, how strong a temptation this has been throughout church history. And if you think about it, escapism is actually a, a very natural kind of a response to a situation that's unpalatable, that is hostile, that is unwelcoming, that is problematic that is painful or confusing. Escapism is an understandable human reaction. We're wired for fight or flight. And Christians, you know, don't think we should fight, so let's flight, flee. But Christian escapism is not Jesus' call. He could have, as he left his disciples, told them, Go and hide. Or go and build your own world somewhere separate. He could have taken them with him. But Jesus will have none of our escapism. We have been left in the world and we have been told that that is where we are to stay. In the world. There's another earlier incident uh, in uh, Jesus' ministry that always strikes me on this point. Uh, You'll remember the story of the uh, Gadarene demoniac, um, this poor man who 
have been driven mad uh, by demonic oppression and been kept in chains for years. He was an object of fear and loathing by uh, the local people. And Jesus delivers him completely, just a magnificent miracle. And most people remember the story because of the pigs, you remember? And the demons go in the pigs, and the pigs go in the lake. That's what everyone remembers. But few people actually remember the scene that takes place at the end of all of this. This man is marvelously delivered. Marvelously delivered. And what does he want to do? Well, everything in him wants to be with the Lord. And Jesus is getting back into the boat with his disciples to carry on his mission and his ministry. And this man wants to go with him. And pleads with the Lord to go with him. And and who cannot blame him? I mean, uh, would you want to return back to the people who had despised you, who had thrown stones at you, who feared you? Try and persuade them, no, I'm, I'm a different person now. Who wouldn't want to be with the healer, the deliverer? But in Mark 5 we read, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit it. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. As a, as a young Christian, I, I wrestled with that a lot. But this is hard. This is hard. I uh, grew up in a non-Christian environment. And when I became a, a Christian as a young man, this is a wonderful deliverance, a wonderful stepping into a whole new world. And there's a longing to leave the past, leave your world. Just get away. But Jesus calls us to live in the world. That's where he's put us. It's not easy with its snares and its temptations and with its hostility to God and to his people. Of course we long to be with Jesus. To be away. To escape. But Jesus is firm. We are to stay in the world. Now, of course, we have to be clear, uh, this is not to be confused in terms of the real call to separate ourselves from sin. That's what that passage about separation is really about. We are to flee sin. That's clear from Scripture. But you see, that isn't the same thing as fleeing the world. Because fleeing the world doesn't remove sin. Because wherever we go, we take the sin within us with us. Isn't that right? All too often, we've sought to flee sin by fleeing the world. But all we do is we take the sin with us. Right? People like to, going back to sacred secular... You know, at least one day of the week, you know, I can get away from the sinful world. I can flee sin. I can be with the Christian people in church. 
Because there's no sin there, right? (laughs) On my way into Nashville, I just happened to drive right down through your main street. And I had the windows down because I could hear all this music pouring in from all these very inviting establishments. Well, I would suggest that, maybe not always, but sometimes, there is more sin in church on Sunday morning than in one of those bars on a Saturday night. Because maybe that Saturday night there's a fellow there having a beer with another guy who's wrestling with his job or his marriage. And they are comforting each other, encouraging each other. But maybe on Sunday, you're sitting there thinking, you know, how long have we had this pastor and he still doesn't preach like Tim Keller? (laughs) I mean, this can't go on. (laughs) Or your wife is looking down the line. That woman's dress is really too short for church, really. I mean, that's what goes on in church, right? That's sin. So it's not as easy as just saying, well, I'm just going to hang out in church and just avoid the bars. Now, I'm not encouraging you all. You understand. But you may find me down there tomorrow night. I'll share a beer with you and encourage you in your life. Jesus makes it clear that avoiding the world is not the way to avoid sin. We are in the world, and as difficult as that may be, this is where we have to stay. But there is another side to this coin, and that's where some of the tension comes in. We are in the world, Jesus affirms, but we are also not of the world. Jesus twice affirms this astounding fact. We are not of the world. Even more astoundingly, he affirms twice that the way we are not of this world is the same way that he is not of this world. In verse 14 of John 17, Jesus says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And again he repeats it in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now it had taken the disciples uh, some three years to finally realize that yes, actually Jesus is not of this world. He's come from somewhere else. There's something else going on with him. He's not just a carpenter. Or even just, you know, an itinerant preacher. This, This is a man from above. But now they have to come, these same disciples, and get their head around an even more amazing reality. That they also are not of the world. In the same emphatic way that Jesus declares the rather obvious fact that we are in the world, he equally emphatically declares a far less obvious fact that we are not of the world. What does he mean? Well, first we must notice that Jesus is making a statement of fact here. You notice that? This is not a command. This is not an indicative. 
sorry, this is not an imperative. This is an indicative. He's making a statement of fact. Elsewhere it is true. In scripture we are told to be holy, a command. Put off the old man, put on the new. Seek first the kingdom. And so on. These are all imperatives, commands, things we have to go and do, which we may not do very well, or at all. But here we are not told to do anything. Rather, Jesus is simply reminding these disciples of a fact, of what God has already done in them, and what God has already done in us. We have been born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. We are already a new creation. Moved from darkness to light, from death to life. And because of this regenerative work of God in our very innermost being, we are no longer of this world. We are no longer slaves to the ruler of this world. But we are set free as sons of the living God. So we no longer take after the father of lies, but rather we take after our father in heaven. This is what it means to be of. To take after, to be of. The son of the father. To take after our father in heaven. Jesus had to rather pointedly rebuke the Pharisees on this point. The most religious people of the day. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. You see, you can be in the world and also of the world. Taking off to the patterns of the world. Taking off to the agenda of the world. Ruled by the ruler of the world. You can be in the world and of the world. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for that. But you can also be in the world and not of the world. Taking off to the Father. Owning the new regenerative work that has taken place in you. Jesus adds, whoever is of God hears the words of God. We have a different call upon our life. A call from above, from God, through his word, that orients our life. Our position is in the world. But our orientation is to hear the word of God. That's the difference. You can be in the world, or indeed even try to escape the world, but be oriented towards the world. You can lock yourself in a monastic cell and just be thinking about the desires of the flesh all day long. Because the orientation is where sin comes in. 
not our position. That's why Jesus could acquaint himself and fellowship, maybe not fellowship, let's say, uh, spend time with tax collectors, prostitutes, the marginalized, and break bread with them. He could be with them positionally, even though he was oriented in his life in a different way. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The issue you see is one of orientation. It's one of belonging. To whom do we belong? Who are we of? It's one of identity. Where do we get our name? Who defines who we are? Is it where we are? You may have noticed that I don't speak with a Nashville accent. Sometimes when I'm in the South, people say, now where's that accent from? I say, I'm from Minnesota. (laughs) Which is true, but it doesn't quite explain the accent, does it? Because it's not a Minnesotan accent either. You see, I'm from a different place, right? Our identity isn't necessarily reflected in where we happen to be standing. Maybe, you know, we're in Nashville. Maybe we're in the world. But where is our identity? Where, what gives us our identity? What are we... Who are we of? We are of the Father. We belong to Him. He orients us and calls us. He gives us our identity. If we are in Christ, then our true Father, we all have our worldly Father, but we have a true Father in heaven, and we belong to Him. And so we are not of this world, but rather we are of God. We take after Him, we follow in His footsteps, we seek to be shaped by His priorities, molded by His image. Think of Dick's talk of the imitation of Christ. We heed his word. And so we are no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed. This is what it means to be not of this world. But if Niebuhr helped us identify Christians who struggled with escapism, with being in the world, it is also sadly the case that in church history we can find Christians who've struggled with not being of the world. The other side of our coin. There have been times through church history where people become confused about this. And this brings us to the Christ of culture. The second chapter in Eva's book where he looks at times and periods in church history where the idea of trying uh, to find God in the culture began to dominate. Even the reshaping of Christianity in order to fit in to the culture. The idea is, well, the Christian is in the world But Christ is in the world too. So we just have to find him. In this view, there is not a fundamental opposition between Christ and culture. 
but actually a fundamental agreement because God is at work. He's at work in history. He's at work in the culture. And the church really just has to keep up. Pay attention to what God is doing in the culture and try to keep up. Jesus, in this mindset, is the fulfillment of society's best hopes. So what society is hoping for, that's what he's there to deliver. And the church needs to kind of not lag behind with our fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned views, which are now outdated as history and culture has moved on. We need to get on board, identify with the culture, join Jesus right there in the culture, and get comfortable. To get comfortable and to make the culture comfortable with our faith, of course we might have to tweak our faith just a little bit. We might have to get rid of the bits that the culture no longer finds palatable. Outmoded ideas like miracles or judgment. Not very popular ideas. Love. Now that's popular. Focus on love. The fatherhood of God who loves everyone. The brotherhood of man. We can all get along. Wherever we see the culture progressing towards greater peace and love and brotherhood, well that must be God at work. So we should just join in. The great text that they like to look to is 1 John 4. God is love. And where love is, there is God. Well, of course, we can identify this particular pattern fairly recently in church history with the rise of what used to be called modernist theology or more commonly called liberal theology. Following the Enlightenment uh, in Europe, advances uh, in science and philosophy and, and in the culture led many of the elites to turn away from God. And there were church leaders who were very concerned about these cultured despisers. Schleiermacher, particularly one of them and felt that they somehow needed to save Christianity from a culture that was despising them. And the way to do that, of course, was to initiate a program of cleaning up the faith, demythologizing scripture, getting rid of the uh, medieval bits and focusing on love. This became what we called in the 20th century liberal theology. It took over the major seminaries, this mood, this mindset, the major denominations. And by the early 20th century, those who were really committed to scripture and to the old-fashioned faith of the fathers were squeezed out as obscurantists. That is where evangelicalism really had its birth. 
Same thing happened in the Catholic Church with Vatican II. In the early part of the 20th century, we had the social gospel movement, where the focus on social justice and love of neighbor eclipsed all ideas of evangelism and the need for personal repentance or personal relationship with God through Christ. The church sided with the forces of progress in the culture to the exclusion of an eternal perspective, a focus on sin and salvation. Uh, Today we see the remnants of this still uh, with many church leaders uh, who would welcome uh, changes in our understanding of sexuality, uh, the uh, opening up of marriage uh, to same-sex couples, now transgender equality. There are large sectors of the church for whom this is a no-brainer. It's not even something you wrestle with. It's obviously the progressive forces at work in the culture towards a better and better society. And the church just needs to get on board. And if we have antiquated ideas about sexuality or marriage or gender, we need to leave them behind. But of course, along the way, the Lord thankfully had a remnant. Faithful folk who thought, wait, wait a minute, is everything in the culture reflective of the work of God? Is God's word that unreliable that it changes from decade to decade? Or is it perhaps that we have misunderstood, perhaps well-intended, well-intended desires to secure the church or to make our faith more palatable to our colleagues? or to show love that we actually have missed some very important things and we have given out the baby with the bathwater. And that's really what some of the fundamentalist reaction was. To say, wait. And the evangelical movement that followed has continued in that same mind to recognize that this Christ of culture is a compromised Christianity that actually is putting culture above Christ. It is judging the word of God by the standards of the world rather than the other way around. That it is focusing on certain inequities but missing deep embedded sin that it is looking for a kind of social morality rather than a salvation this is Christianity of the culture Niebuhr identifies it very well as a perhaps well intended but ultimately misguided effort 
to fit in to the culture. But Jesus' words, again, if we go back to John 17, make it very clear. We are not of this world. We do not have to make Christianity of the culture. We are not, therefore, to be conformed to the culture, to its values, to its priorities. Our agenda, our values... Our priorities come from above. We are to be transformed and adopt the identity that God gives us in His Word. And this uh, grounding of our identity uh, with God is not just a sort of a psychological thing. Remember, Jesus describes this as in the indicative. You are not of the world. Something has changed within us. We may still feel, even as believers, that we, we feel so embedded in the world, we feel so conformed to it. Sin shrouds everything we do. We sometimes lose sight of the amazing thing that God has already done in us. Something has changed deep within us. And what is left for us now is to work that change out. That new creation has to be expressed. We are certainly in the world, but it is equally true that there is something in us that is not worldly that has begun. There is a new work going on in us. New life growing, rooted in a new heart, oriented by a new relationship with the Father. This is the seed of the new creation. And like every seed, it can start very small and hidden, but it works its way out. And even as Jesus leaves... He sends the Spirit who comes as the comforter, the enabler, the sustainer. He gives us His Word, the Word of Truth, which He tells us will sanctify us. And then He culminates this very prayer with the promise that He Himself will dwell with us. Jesus prays that I myself may be in them. So even as we are in the world, we can face that with the utmost confidence. For we are not bound by the world and its conforming power. There is another power at work, a different force that is at work within us. Greater is he that is is in you than he that is in the world. This is the comfort that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's the comfort that we can take as we face this hostile world. We may be in it. We're not of it. That new identity must work its way out. And so we have our calling, right? Or do we? 
Well, we've seen that the historic church has struggled to avoid being pulled to one or either side of these tensions. Niebuhr goes on. Boy, we need to move along here. In his final three chapters, to show ways in which the church has tried to find a balance between being in and of. The first two, to escape the world, the second, to conform to the world, are clearly not biblical. And so the church historically has tried to come up with different approaches. We don't have time to go into all of these, they're well worth a read. Uh, but uh, just briefly you have the Christ above culture which is a kind of a a Catholic vision of Christ above and everything below the Christ of culture in paradox more of a Lutheran perspective and then the reform perspective which has informed the evangelicals mostly Christ the transformer of culture the idea that Christ has come to make all things new. The evangelical perspective picks up on that, avoiding the duality of the first two. The evangelical approach follows what is really the biblical storyline. Uh, we already saw and heard a little bit of this from Dick earlier. A wonderful book if uh, you want to uh, really get into this a little bit more, uh, is by L. Walters. It's a classic, 1985, Creation Regained. Uh, To help orient you in thinking about an evangelical approach to Christ and culture, I don't think you can do better. It goes through the biblical storyline. Because of creation, we know that culture is not all bad. But because of the fall, we know that it is certainly shot through with evil. Because it's not all bad, we shouldn't escape it. We're there. Because it's shot through with evil, we shouldn't conform to it. But rather, because of redemption, we have this hope that just as something new has begun within us, it can follow through and flow through into the world around us. And just as we can be transformed, our families, our communities, our cultures, our nations can be transformed. Christ is making all things new. The final thing, the consummation, uh, is where we part ways with Niebuhr in his sort of uh, transforming view in his last chapter, uh, where he uh, fails to adequately recognize that as much as we can be transformed and should seek transformation, we know that that will never be complete until Christ comes again. So we avoid the temptation of uh, 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 expecting that somehow we can perfect ourselves in this world. And that's where Niebuhr is fascinating, wonderful uh, and he clearly leans to his fifth model Christ the Transformer but he tends to overstate a little bit what we can expect to have accomplished until Christ comes again. But the biblical storyline gives us a wonderful balance on these things. That's the historic 
uh, solutions, if you like, where the church has tried to avoid those tensions. Evangelicals have also tried to avoid the extreme positions. But we still struggle, don't we? We kind of know the parameters. We're trying to work this transforming thing, but, but we still struggle. And uh, we experience many tensions still in the evangelical church today. We could spend a lot of time talking about these. But I wanted this morning to really, to really step back and remind us of the basic framework. Because to be honest, I think we're never going to be able to completely uh, ease the tensions. We're going to find ourselves pulling one way or the other. People are coming up with different paradigms, different ideas. If we keep in mind these two basic parameters, we are in the world, don't try to escape it. We're not of the world. I think that will guide us through a lot of these more controversial debates. In churchmanship, uh, you've got the two kingdoms idea, which is the resurrection of of the Lutheran sort of distinction between church and the world. On the one side, you know, maybe a little bit tending towards the escapist side, a little too much, putting too much hope in, uh, in uh, the church, as it were, as an institution. On the other side, we have the emergent church, right, which really tried to grapple with the postmodern turn, how to be relevant to a younger generation, maybe a little too much tempted to identify with the culture, to conform to the culture, rather than to stand. So you see two expressions of churchmanship that reflect partly, not totally, these tensions. Uh, In our evangelistic witness, there's been this long-standing tension between word and deed. We see that reflected. But particularly, of course, in our social and political engagement. There, of course, on the one hand, you have the kind of culture wars approach, we have the Benedictine option, which has attracted a lot of attention, seems to be a stepping back from the culture, from the world, and you have the social justice warriors who want to just jump right in and, you know, go at it. Uh, And in all of these, there are big debates going on, but they all carry the same dangers to fall off one edge or the other, to conform too much to the world, forget that we are not of the world, or, on the other hand, uh, to try to be too distinct and to forget that we are left here for a reason. Let me uh, give you what I think should be our sort of frame going forward. Rather than trying to pick between all these different options, the Wilberforce option or the the Benedictine option or do we need a new paradigm, I'll be talking about this more in my second workshop. We debate these things as if we can figure out a paradigm that's going to make it easy and solve it all. I think first of all, don't try to ease the tension. It's always going to be strange. We're always going to feel strange. We're never going to feel at home in this world. Uh, we're never going to escape it. Uh, We're never, and we should never conform to it. Live in the tension. You've got something new and creative going on in you. 
let that come out. Wherever you are, wherever God has put you, uh, whatever your gifts, whatever your, your vocation or your family circumstances may be, that gives opportunities for you. Live it out. We are told that we are the salt of the earth, right? But don't lose your saltiness. Mm-hmm. We are the salt. You are a new creation. That's, it's, an, it's an indicative. But the imperative is this, you know, don't go soft. Stand firm. Don't lose your saltiness. Remain distinct. We're told that we are the light of the world. Again, it's not something we have to accomplish. It's an indicative. We are the light of the world. The imperative is don't hide it. Don't put it under a bushel. Remain engaged. Let your light shine. So here we see the two sides. Be salt, but also be light. Be light, but also be salt. Be engaged, but remain stinked. I want to end, though, with what something we sometimes miss, even in this John 17. If we dig deeper into that passage, there's another aspect to this in, not of uh, idea. For Jesus goes on in verse 18 and sets before us actually a far greater challenge. He says, as you, he's talking to the Father now, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, what Jesus is saying is that we haven't just simply been left in the world. We have been sent into the world. And the difference is profound. It changes our whole orientation. We're here for a purpose. Jesus didn't just leave us behind for some logistical problem. Some technicality of timing. Well, I'm going to, you know, and you can join me later. We just have to kind of wait for that moment. No. He, we have been left for a purpose. And that purpose is the world itself. We are here for the world. Now think about that preposition. We get caught up in these prepositions. In, not of, you know. But here's the preposition that really counts. We are here for the world. Mm-hmm. You see, if you, if you get that right, then you're never going to want to escape. You may, in one sense, long to escape. But you're not going to want to escape. Because you're here for the world. You can't leave them behind. You can't, you know, make it easy on yourself. You want to be there in the thick of it, in the mud of it. You're there for the world, for a broken world that needs you. And that's the second part. You're there because the world does need you. And it needs you because you are distinct. You have something to bring. Mm-hmm. You're not just there to be conformed. You're there to bring a word, to bring the spirit, to bring a presence, to bring change, to bring healing. This may be just within your family. It doesn't have to necessarily be geopolitical. 
but it can extend to the geopolitical. Nations have been turned around by these simple truths. But it starts in our hearts, it starts in our families, in our neighborhoods. It starts with the courage to know that what is going on in you should be shining out. And that it, the, need, the world needs you. We are there for the world. Just as the Gadarene demoniac was sent by Jesus back to where he came from, so Jesus is unequivocal in sending us back. He says in chapter 10 of Matthew, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You think about it? What? I mean, this is the good shepherd. I mean, what a way to take care of the sheep. Right? I mean, good shepherd, got my sheep. Now, see those wolves over there? Yeah, I see the wolves. I'm going to hang with the shepherd. No. I mean, I was struck by this when I was a new Christian. I thought, man, Jesus is, what is he doing? This is not how a shepherd behaves. Well, you see, the thing is, Jesus is not only thinking about the sheep, he's thinking about the lost sheep. They are the ones surrounded by the wolves, right? It's a hard message. It's a hard place that Scripture puts us in, to be in the world. But when we are there with a purpose and we have the sense of calling for the sake of the world, for the sake of the lost, even the Good Shepherd deliberately sends us out of love for this broken world. And of course that's why he came. Out of love for this world. That's why he came into the world. This messed up place. Out of love. And he sends us as he was sent. As you sent me, I have sent them. Jesus is sent for the sake of the world and so are we. For God so loved the world. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the son so loves the same world that he gives and sends his own. This is the great theme of scripture, that God in love not only calls people to himself, but also sends them out for the sake of the world. I'm going to wrap up there because I think I've gone too far with time. Um, but um, if you want to stay and ask one or two questions, I do apologize uh, for the little But uh, my second workshop, I will be getting a little bit more into the details of some of the new options that are being presented. Uh, but I wanted this morning to just really lay this framework to encourage us as we wrestle through the tactics of how to be and what to do. Don't get too bogged down. Just remember these basic principles and live it out. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. 
You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.